The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. Uh, let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for this word that you've given to us that we can consider from Paul on how we are to live our lives in this 21st century so that we know that we can reach out in love to those who are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and live in such a way that honors and glorifies you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We come today to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and in doing so, we first have tread through chapter 8, and we know from Jeff's sermon last week that in chapter 8, Paul is dealing with concerns that the Corinthian church had, and the concerns there are what sets up Paul's message in chapter 9. In chapter 8, Paul had talked about the problem the Corinthian church had over eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Now, these idols, of course, were part of the pagan culture in Corinth, and it was common for much of the meat that was on the market at the time to have been sacrificed to those idols in that market and sold. And a lot of believers knew that there was no such thing as gods, uh, the uh, pagan gods, and so they were free to eat this meat. They knew that it didn't mean anything. Others who were younger and newer believers were concerned that this meat sacrificed to idols might in some way be contaminated by these pagan gods. And so they did not want to eat that meat. Paul went through and explained in a couple of ways. First, that this meat offered to idols meant nothing because there were no other gods. There's no gods to which these meat, this meat was actually sacrificed. However, he went on to say that it was, he was free to eat that meat, but he chose not to. And he chose not to out of love for his fellow believers in Corinth. He chose not to because he did not want to offend these other believers. He did not want them to feel like what he was doing was in some way wrong and of offending them. And so Paul, out of love for these other believers, chose not to eat this meat that was offered to idols. And so that is the principle that Paul lays out in chapter 8, that we make personal sacrifices in our own life refraining from certain rights that we do have so that we don't offend other believers. There are areas in the Christian life, in our living, that are controversial in many ways. And Paul will deal with a few of these in this chapter 9. At the same time, there's these disputes that we may have with one another over whether or not a Christian has freedom or liberty to engage in a particular activity or other. We're not talking about activities that's unbiblical, immoral, uh, but we're talking about areas where there is no biblical rule for or against it. In these areas, Paul's message is, out of love, we need to know how to refrain from engaging those activities if it's something that might offend another brother. So the issue here that Paul is getting at is really one of which, how much do you care for other believers? It's not simply exercising our own rights, and that's, of course, what we as Americans often want to do is to make sure we exercise our constitutional rights. What Paul is saying here is, in the sphere of the Christian world and in our ethics, in our activity, we sometimes need to refrain from exercising our rights if it's going to offend other believers. And so that's his message. And really, this message is a message to the mature believer. Now, a lot of us, you know, have gone through these disputes over the decades, and we know what they are. I remember from the decades ago, there was often controversy in the church over whether or not it was proper for uh, Christians to dance, whether it was proper for Christians to consume alcohol, whether or not they should wear wire rim glasses or black rim glasses. 
the length of a person's hair. These were all the sorts of disputes that have been through the church in the recent decades. These are the types of things that apply here. And Paul's message is not simply that we may have rights to do certain things, but that we may have an obligation to refrain from doing certain things if it offends others. And so when we come to chapter 9, Paul describes his ministry here as one of self-sacrifice and accommodation to those believers who, are, who may be offended by certain things. Now, we come to uh, chapter, one, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, and Paul here describes his role. He begins with four questions, and he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. In these two verses, Paul asks these questions. First, is he not free? Is he not an apostle? And of course, the obvious answer required here is yes. Paul is free. Paul is an apostle. So he is here defending his apostleship. There appears to be those in Corinth who regularly questioned whether or not was a true apostle. And they question that based on the fact that Paul chose to refrain from exercising certain rights. So in these coming verses, he's going to explain that he had a right to do certain things. He would do it, but at the same time, at the same time, he had a right to do it. He would refrain from doing certain things if it offended other believers. And so that's the point that he's making here. He's doing this in service to others. So he is free. He is an apostle. Now, of course, the apostles were the foundation of the early church. They were the early leaders of the church. They were the leaders who established the church, its structure, its doctrine, who taught that. Paul, of course, being primary among most of them. Paul did this, of course, laying a foundation. But now we find Paul, who established his church in Corinth himself, who had built this church, who had ministered among them for so many years, now he finds certain members of this church questioning whether or not he himself is an apostle. So he's defending his apostleship here. He says, isn't it true that I've seen the Lord myself? Now, of course, there he's explaining, reminding us what he saw in Acts chapter 9 and again in Acts chapter 26. He talks about this again in Galatians chapter 1, explaining that he saw Jesus on that Damascus road. And based on that encounter, he was an apostle, one commissioned by God, one commissioned by Christ to carry this message of the gospel throughout the world. So he was an apostle and he establishes that. He also describes himself as one who, uh, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? In other words, he is the one who built this church. He worked this church. He made this happen in Corinth by preaching there among them, sharing with them the gospel. So they are his workmanship. He did this on their behalf. And then he says, if to others I am not an apostle, at least to you I am. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. In other words, he reminds this church at Corinth what he's done for them. And even if other believers, to whom he's not personally met, might question whether he's an apostle, he says, to you at least, you know what I did for you. You know the sacrifices I made for you. You are my workmanship. You know what I am to you. So Paul here has defended his apostleship. He speaks of them as his seal. They are his seal. They are the, the, the seal is a legal term that stamps down and make, marks something as his. They are his church. He's built this as an apostle. And so these are the questions that indicate sort of what is this dispute at Corinth. Uh, and we've seen this throughout this uh, letter. People in Corinth questioning whether or not Paul is an apostle. He clearly establishes 
that he is. When he would write to them in a subsequent letter, 2 Corinthians, he would talk to them also about them being his letter of recommendation. In fact, he would later refer to this church as his biography, his letter of recommendation, explaining to other people, this is what I did. This is why I'm an apostle, because of what I did among the Corinthians. So he's established and argued for his apostleship. Now we come to verse 3, and he's going to establish his rights, not only as an apostle, but as a Christian, as a believer. These are rights that he would have. In verse 3, he lays out this legal argument for his defense. This is my defense to those who would examine me. So he's laying out in Hellenistic rhetorical strategy this argument about what his defense is. This is a very finely crafted explanation of his role as an apostle and the rights that he has. This is what you would expect to see in a court of law in Corinth in the first century. And so he's going to give his defense to those who sat in judgment over him. So we see from these other contexts in chapter 8 and in chapter 10, again, we'll see in the future, that Paul refused to eat meat sacrificed to idols. They didn't like, they were concerned about this, and they thought this may be evidence that Paul himself was not a full apostle. And so he understood this eating, to be, eating meat to be theologically significant. So he's going to define his practices, explain his practices here, and show why he refused to eat meat. And of course, in doing this, beginning in verse 4 and following, we're going to see Paul lay out the essential fabric of the Christian ethic. And that is we have certain rights. We have the rights to, to many things, but we often refrain from those rights out of love for other believers. In verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? In this, Paul lays out several rights that he has. The answer is clearly yes. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? And the answer is yes. In other words, Paul would say here, he would have a right to drink alcohol if he chose to. He would have a right to eat meat sacrificed to idols if he chose to. And perhaps even in private away from other believers, he may have done so if they would be offended by it. But Paul here argues he certainly did have this right. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So he talks about the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, Jude and James and, and others, and even Cephas, the Aramaic name for Peter. So these other apostles traveled throughout Asia Minor, traveled throughout Greece, and they brought their believing wives along with them. And so to the Corinthian believers, they thought if these other apostles bring their wives along, and Paul doesn't, maybe these other apostles are superior to Paul. And Paul's arguing, no, I have a right to bring along a believing wife if I had one. I choose not to. And then he asks again, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Now, this double negative, right to refrain from working, could be, again, thought better as an obligation. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have, no have an obligation to work for a living? In other words, he is working for a living. He is paying his way as he goes throughout Corinth, as he ministers to them. But he does have a right to be paid by them if he so chose. And that's the argument that he's making here. So he has these rights, but he chooses to forgo these rights, these entitlements to him. So he's established again that he is an apostle, 
And as an apostle, as a Christian, as a believer, he's entitled to certain things. In Acts chapter 18, when Paul arrived in Corinth, and we see it described there, he meets Aquila and Priscilla, two other believers in Corinth, ministers with them. They begin to build this church. But in Acts 18, it talks about the fact that Aquila and Priscilla were also tent makers like Paul. And so this word tent makers has sort of entered our vocabulary as uh, pastors who work outside the church. And of course, you may know that the vast majority of pastors in America and throughout the world do work outside the church. Most churches are very small, don't have full-time pastors or pastoral staff. So the pastors themselves have to work outside the church to support themselves so that they can minister to believers. And that's what Paul's showing us here. As a tent maker, he never gave up his tent making abilities and capacity to earn his own living. He did so so that he could make a living on the outside and not need to take from those believers on the inside of the church. And so this is his right. He declined to be married, as he explained in prior chapters. He chose to remain single because of the life that he would lead as a missionary, because of the shipwreck he would suffer, the way he would have to travel. He knew that it would be better for him not to be married, and so he chose voluntarily not to be married and to minister without that. So Paul establishes this. In verse 7, he uses, again, three more examples. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? And the answer is no one. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? No one. Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? And again, the answer is no one. These are all common occupations in the first century to which people had an obligation to do. They had responsibilities. But if you were in the army, they didn't recruit you and require you to pay your own way. You were paid to be in uh, the army, to be a soldier, for example, in the Roman army. They paid you. In fact, as a Roman soldier, when you might travel across uh, throughout Europe and other places, you would collect your own share of the booty from the raids you would make in the world. And so this would be brought back and you would share in that. And so they were paid. And again, if you plant a vineyard, you're entitled to eat its fruit. And if you have a flock, uh, you're entitled to some of the milk from the flock. These are rights. These are common. Nobody disputed this. So he uses these analogies in ordinary language, in our ordinary life, to show that we have these certain rights. Verse 8, he continues on making these same arguments. Do I say these things on human authority? He asks here, am I just making this up? Do you think I'm just making this up? And the answer is no. He continues, does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? He used this illustration for the book of Deuteronomy chapter 25, where in the law, Moses writes, do not, the, uh, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Now, there's two methods of treading grain at the time. One, you would put the grain on the threshing floor with a post in the middle, tie an ox to it, and the ox would drag a board in circles around the threshing floor, threshing it out, breaking it apart. Or you might not have the board and just let the ox or goats or donkeys walk on it as it circled around, breaking it apart. That's how they threshed it. But in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 25, God said, don't put a muzzle on that ox or those animals doing that. In other words, they too were entitled to eat of the grain that they were threshing themselves. 
And so even animals were looked after by God saying that they're entitled to eat what they work, how they produce. And so those were the two methods used in the first century for threshing. So he makes this argument. And then verse 10, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It is written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So those who plow, those who thresh, even the animals, they're all entitled to reap the benefits of their work, of their labor. So they're entitled to be paid to eat, survive off of their labor. This is very common. This is well known. This was not widely disputed. And so Paul has laid this argument out in this fashion to let people know that, yes, those who work, those who labor are entitled to be paid and compensated for the work that they do. And that's how he summarizes it up. Verse 11 and 12, he now turns to himself. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul explains to them that we have sown spiritual things among you. And again, this refers back to those moments when he invested his life into their life, sharing with them the gospel, teaching them, growing them, bringing them from points of immaturity in their believing life up to higher points of maturity, leading them along the way. He spent so much time invested in them spiritually. He asked now, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Again, the spiritual investment that Paul had made in their lives was far greater than the material things they may give to him to help him meet his physical material needs. And then he makes a point in verse 12 again, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? In other words, other apostles, other people in ministry traveled through Corinth, and when they came, they were compensated, they were paid, they were taken care of. And if they're entitled to be taken care of, and they are, Paul says, aren't I or Barnabas equally entitled to be compensated, to be paid, to be taken care of by you for the work that we've done among you? Now, we see here Paul making these points repeatedly, this rightful claim that he has. But he says again in verse 12, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right that we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul said, I've been entitled to compensation from you these many years, and I've never taken it from you, because I didn't want that to become an obstacle to other believers, to other potential new believers, in thinking that I only did it for the money. I only did it for the, 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 the business side of it. Paul says, I did this so that I could share the gospel of Christ. And that was his point. That was his ministry. In verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? He now goes to the Jerusalem temple, which would be destroyed in just a few years. But at this time, it still stands. The sacrifices are still being made in the Jerusalem temple by the Jews. And Paul said, even in the temple, the priests that work there are entitled to eat and to be paid and to be fed from the sacrifices made in the temple. That's provided for in the Old Testament. 
And that's the case. Verse 14, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So in verse 14, he makes it plain. In the same way, the Lord commanded, not suggested, but commanded that those who teach the gospel, proclaim the gospel like him, that they should get their living by the gospel. And so this verse establishes a principle that it is legitimate and fair and often required that those who preach, that those who teach, be compensated for their work among the body, for the time that they've invested in the church. And so that's where Paul establishes his primary point so far. He is entitled to be paid. Now, if you've only read to this point, you might sense that at this point, Paul is beginning to lead up to the point where he's going to ask for their money. He's going to say now, now that I've done all this for you, it's time for you to send money to me. Now, we've seen preachers, many on TV even, who ask for large donations, who proclaim that their ministries are going to fail if you don't send in large donations to help them out. They try and guilt you into it. Some even argue that they're doing you a favor by allowing you to give money to them because God will now bless you. And so if you send money to me, the TV evangelist, God will bless you for it. Now, if they really wanted to bless you, you think this TV evangelist might send money to you instead. But their appeal is to send money to them. Paul would be against all of that. He in no way is talking about or legitimizing those who exploit believers, claiming that they need to be guilted into giving in this way. But he is saying that those who teach and preach and sacrifice and invest time and their lives in the body are entitled to be paid. But Paul is not going to ask for that. Common fairness would suggest that he's entitled to it. The current social practices would show that he is entitled to it. The Old Testament law itself shows that they're obligated to support him, but he says none of that. Instead, in verse 15, he shows why he's willing to restrict his rights. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. In verse 15, he turns course entirely and he explains to them, he has chosen not to exercise any of those rights to be paid by them because he wanted to show he loved them so much he was willing to teach and preach among them and support himself on the side so that nobody could ever claim that he only did it for the money, that he only did it because that was uh, his way of exploiting them. He did it instead entirely out of love. I have not used any of these rights, he boldly declares. And that's his point. He did not do that. He never secured from them any provision. In fact, the only times we ever see Paul asking for money, it's so that he can transfer it to other believers in need. For example, the Jerusalem church during the famine. That's why he did it. So he defends his apostleship. And he says he would rather die than have anyone claim that he did it for the money. He knew that he had a special blessing in serving this way and making it as a sacrifice in his own life. And this is this ethical principle, this point that Paul is making, that we as Christian ministers as people who minister one to each other, can do so out of love and do so sacrificially and do so for the benefit of the body by doing it without compensation, by doing it without making that our primary means of survival. He could take money, but he didn't. And he does not here 
in any way denigrate those who needed it, who did. Instead, he talks about the sacrifice that he made and that he boasted in that. Now, there may be other reasons that Paul chose to make tents. His tent-making occupation is where he made a living. And we see throughout the book of Acts when Paul traveled, he first made a place for himself in the community. He worked in the community. And no doubt he did so as a tent maker. And when he did, he would find himself meeting customers, having people come to him. And he would use those opportunities in life in the secular world, we might think, as a means of teaching the gospel, of proclaiming who Christ is, of sharing the gospel with these people. And that's how he found his place of ministry in these new cities. He simply set up his shop as a tent maker, began making tents and selling them, and using that as a means of sharing the gospel. So his decision not to be paid by the church was strategic on multiple levels. He chose not to because he didn't want to offend the, young, the weaker brothers. He chose not to because he knew he could make a living as a tent maker, but share the gospel there as well. That was his place of ministry. So in verses 16 and 17, he continues, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no grounds for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. This was his calling. This was his mission. This is all he wanted to do in his life, was to teach and preach what Christ had done for him and what Christ had done for these others. And in doing so, he's sharing the gospel with them. He said to take money would in some way diminish that. I want to make this sacrifice on your behalf. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. He's been called as a steward by God to share the gospel, and he wants people to know this is what he's going to do. He's going to share it with them. So he enhanced his preaching ministry in many ways. He taught voluntarily. He taught without compensation. He sacrificed to do that. He traveled throughout the world, paying his own way, caring for himself. But he did so not simply because that was his job. He did so because he was called by Christ as an apostle to do this on their behalf. And so verse 18, what then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. That was his mission. Now verse 18 is transfer, uh, translated here as a question and an answer. What then is my reward? The question, what is my reward? And the answer, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. His mission was to share the gospel. That was his reward. His reward was found in seeing the pagan, uh, the pagan believers of Corinth now becoming Christian believers and followers of Christ. His reward was in building this church. His reward was in ministering to the personal, psychological, material, physical needs of these people in Corinth helping them along the way in the Christian life. That was his reward. And we see in Paul a great example of what it means to be a Christian leader, what it means to be a believer of maturity, of, of status within a church. Because you now have a place where you can reach out to those who are new believers, those who are immature believers, new in the faith, and show them as well what it means to make this sacrifice, what it means to give of yourself. The great... Christian theologian, philosopher Francis Schaeffer wrote a book entitled True Spirituality. And in that book, 
The first chapter was entitled The Law and the Law of Liberty. And when Schaefer wrote this book, he was describing what it meant to be a truly spiritual believer. And he talks first about the law and then the law of liberty. In doing so, he talks about the fact that if we're a believer, we have certain obligations. And he talks about the fact that there's certain things the scriptures prohibit, a list we might make. Don't do these things. And Paul made several lists in his epistles. And then there's things to which we have a freedom to, to engage in that we may do. So Paul has these lists. Now, in our Christian life, we know uh, it's often the case where people make a list. And so Safer explains this. We make a list of taboos. And so we can say a believer should not do this, this, and this. And sometimes those who make those lists make them very extensive because they think every time we can draw one more line and, and cross out other activities, we make things, uh, our, our circle of spirituality greater. And so we can ban Christians from engaging in all sorts of activities. And so there's that tendency. And Schaefer describes a time at Labrie, the mission he founded in Switzerland, a time when he sat there with a, a number of new believers in the 1970s. And they were talking about these things and debating these things. And some new believers thought that we should have these taboos. Don't do these things. But others, on the other hand, said, but there's freedom. We are free to engage in certain activities. And so Schaefer saw this engagement between these two sets of, of ideas and thought that in their own way, they were both right. And so we can make this list. But then he said that if you take those lists of taboos and you lift them away, you're not faced with liberty entirely in a libertarian sense. Instead, you're faced with the entire Ten Commandments and all the Bible commands. You still have those. Those can't be lifted away. And the Tenth Commandment is not to covet, not to have that internal desire to seek after material things in your life. And so he explains that some believers want to lift away taboos and do anything, have a great freedom in life to where they're really not acting as a Christian at all. But what Schaefer does say is at that point, you're confronted with what Paul says here, that there is this law of love, that even if you decide certain things can be engaged in life, certain activities are freedoms to you, you still have this law of love where you don't do it because you don't want to offend a weaker brother. You don't want to offend others. And so the law of love is what drives us. The law of love is which moves us to make sacrifices on behalf of others. The law of love is which drives us to reach out to make the sacrifices by sharing the gospel in other places. This is what Schaefer's getting at because that's what Paul is getting at. Paul is sharing with us this Christian ethic of reaching out and living our life in love so that we don't offend others. And he's going to continue doing that in the coming chapters. He's going to continue doing this and explaining that as Christians, love matters most. And so, are we free to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Paul would say yes. But if you see that doing so offends weaker brothers, then don't do that. Paul defends his apostleship by saying that these sacrifices I've made is not because I'm not an apostle. It's because I love you, and I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want that to become the stumbling block that separates them from that decision to turn their life to Christ. And so in our own lives, that's our calling. Don't offend others. So what does this get to? It gets to how we live our life. It gets to what we post on our Facebook page. It gets to how we portray ourselves in the world. In fact, you think about your online presence in Paul's world, 
you might only personally know dozens of people, and it might be quite simple to live in a, inside a home and, and eat meat sacrificed to idols without others knowing it. So that might be fine. Today, in our online presence, people have a window into your life. We show them how we live. We show them what we think by reposting. In this way, we are showing who we are. And Paul would encourage all of us to pay attention to how we live and what we do to make sure we do everything out of love for each other. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these great words of Paul in reminding us that love is what matters most in our life, living in love, serving others in love, and making sacrifices when necessary out of love for other believers. And so, Lord, we ask that you will help each of us, mature believers, new believers, to look to our own lives and ask, where might we need to make sacrifices so that we might reach out with your message further? For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.